Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 13 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. So first off, last week iTunes came out with statistics for the various podcasts that they host. Before that, it was hard to tell how many people were listening and subscribing. But I saw that 75% of the people who listen to this podcast on iTunes also subscribed to the channel. So I just want to say thanks for your support. I appreciate you listening and subscribing, and I'm going to keep doing what I can to put out good material. If you don't listen to podcasts on iTunes, Income Investing is also available on Google Play, it's on Stitcher, and also on SoundCloud. Also, as a quick housekeeping item, I post the transcripts for all of the podcast episodes on my blog. AlexisAsadi.net slash blog. As of last week, I've started to include a bullet point summary of the episodes, just in case you don't have time to listen to the entire show. Okay, so like we always do, let's begin by addressing a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can submit a question at AlexisAsadi.net slash podcast. This week, we have one from Liam, who wanted to know why the 2008 recession impacted the U.S. so much more than it did Canada. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode, we talked about some of the risks of mortgage lending. We then tied them in to one of the worst financial crises in modern history, the Great Recession. So that's where Liam's question stems from. So you'll recall that there were about 4 million foreclosures in the U.S. during the Great Recession. At its peak, the unemployment rate reached 10%. American firms like Bear Stearns, Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, AIG, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler either collapsed or they had to be bailed out by the government. Over 160 American banks failed in 2008 and 2009. In Canada, while the unemployment rate spiked and there was an uptick in foreclosures, Not a single bank wavered. The economy did recede, but it wasn't calamitous. Liam, Canada weathered the recession mostly because of its healthy regulatory environment. For example, unlike the US in the early 2000s, its bankers weren't allowed to just lend to anyone with a heartbeat. Borrowers needed a reasonable down payment, a credit history, and a source of income. As such, banks were exposed to less risk. Further, Canadian banks were better capitalized than their American counterparts. They often had safer assets, less debt, and more cash relative to their size. They didn't invest as heavily in toxic CDOs and other questionable products. So when markets teetered, they didn't implode. I know regulation is a bad word, especially in business, but it can be the difference between losing 160 banks, wiping out shareholders and creditors, terminating thousands of jobs and drying up credits, and losing no banks. The Canadian economy is far from perfect, but its banks and banking system are envied by a lot of nations. Now, the challenge that Canada and every other country will face going forward 
is the impact of economic integration. Since we do business internationally, it's impossible to be completely insulated if one nation recedes. Ten years after the Great Recession, we are a lot more intertwined. As such, you don't need the world's biggest economy to burn down to trigger an international recession. A country like Germany or Japan could cause the same thing. To be sure, from a national perspective, the economic advantages of globalization far outweigh the risks. But it's still something to be aware of. Ironically, within a few hours of publishing last week's episode of Income Investing, the US government announced that it plans to soften part of the Dodd-Frank Act. This was a law enacted in 2010, which limited banks' ability to invest in risky assets, like CDOs. It was in response to the Great Recession, to make sure that something like it never happened again. The easing of this law is part of a greater effort by the current government to loosen the regulations that have been placed on Wall Street. Like I said last week, people have forgotten how damaging the 2008 recession was. This is a perfect example. The sad part is that most Americans want their banks to be tightly regulated. Many are anti-regulation when it comes to energy, trade, and environmental policies, but almost nobody wants Wall Street to have the power to use their clients' savings accounts to buy risky financial instruments and cause another economic meltdown. But this is what happens when bankers who used to work on Wall Street now work in the government. For example, the current U.S. Secretary of the Treasury is Steve Mnuchin, who spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs Bank. Until two months ago, the director of the National Economic Council was Gary Cohn, the former president and chief operating officer of Goldman Sachs. Dina Powell and Steve Bannon are also Goldman Sachs alumni who both served in the Trump administration. It's no wonder that the government now wants to reduce regulations in Wall Street. Goldman Sachs was one of the many banks that underwrote bad mortgages and sold them to their clients. But in a particularly sinister move, it subsequently made investments that would also do well if those mortgages failed. The bank knew that its products would fail, yet it still sold them to its own clients. Goldman Sachs was investigated by the U.S. Congress, the Department of Justice, and the Securities and Exchange Commission for its actions, ultimately paying around $10 billion to settle various lawsuits for defrauding its investors. So the same company that contributed to the implosion of the global economy in 2008 now has executives dictating U.S. economic policy. It appears that our collective memory just doesn't last more than a few years. All right, well, enough of the bad news. Let's continue our journey through the mortgage world. We'll begin, as always, by recapping a few of the prior episodes. Thus far, we've established that a mortgage is a legal tool that's used to secure a debt with real estate. It forces a borrower to pay the proceeds of a property sale to her registered creditors before she can realize any gains from it. For example, if there's a $500,000 house with two mortgages on it that total $400,000, they would be paid off before she could earn the remaining $100,000. We also know that the loan-to-value ratio, or LTV in that case, would be 80%, because 80% of the real estate's value is indebted. As well, the two mortgages would be repaid in chronological order. The one that was registered first would be repaid first. This is a concept known as priority. 
If the borrower defaults on the loan agreement, the lender can then sue her and try to foreclose on the property. That means forcing the sale of the real estate so that the lender can recoup its funds. We then looked at how mortgage loans can be effective income-producing investments. We saw that they can generate cash through interest, fees, and penalties. In most cases, the lender will be reimbursed for all of its expenses, including legal costs, by the borrower. And last week, we talked about some of the risks of mortgage loans. The biggest one is default risk, which is what happens when the borrower stops making payments. At the very least, it can cause a disturbance in cash flow. But even worse, if the worth of the property is less than the value of the mortgage, meaning that it's underwater, then the lender may not be able to recover all of his capital if he's forced to foreclose. For instance, let's revisit the example from just a minute ago. We've got a $500,000 property with two mortgages on it, each worth $200,000. So there's a total of $400,000 of debt on the real estate. If the markets fell and the property's price dipped to $300,000, only the first mortgage could be fully paid out if the lenders foreclosed on it. There would only be enough to pay $100,000 to the second mortgage holder he would have to try to recover the rest of the debt from the borrower's remaining assets, which can be a lot harder. If the borrower goes bankrupt, he may not recover anything else. We also looked at default risk from an extreme perspective, the 2008 Great Recession. We saw what can happen when millions of bad loans go under, especially when they're tied into insurance companies, shady investment products, and unreasonable credit ratings. In addition to default risk, we know that some of the main risks of mortgage loans can include origination and liquidity risk. This week, we're going to explore how to manage two of those three risks. But before we do so, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing of up to $250,000 to entrepreneurs and real estate investors who are looking to grow. We're open to businesses in both the U.S. and Canada. Get the capital you need to achieve your dreams. You can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. Okay, so let's get back to it. As with the last couple of episodes, we'll look at this from the perspective of a lender. Even if you don't plan to lend money directly, you'd rather invest through a fund or otherwise, this is still important to know. This material comprises the foundations of all mortgage investments. If you're not going to do this groundwork yourself, somebody else will be on your behalf. It's good to know what's going on underneath the hood. So, we'll start with managing default risk. What steps can you take to help ensure that the person or the company that's borrowing from you can pay you back? In most cases, People who have trouble repaying mortgage loans encounter some sort of financial difficulty. They usually aren't crooks trying to run away with your money. They know that there's a property on the line, so they probably couldn't get away with it. Most of the time, they need capital for legitimate personal or business reasons. If they aren't able to pay you back, it's probably because they can't, not because they won't. As such, it's important to investigate their capacity to make loan payments. The first way to do so is to look at their income. Do they have a job? 
Are they self-employed? How much money have they earned in the past year or so? And what are they currently making? You can do this with relative ease just by asking for a copy of their most recent tax returns. This will also shed light on whether they pay their taxes. If they don't, the government may eventually sue them and threaten the security of your real estate collateral. Some lenders will even ask for a few years' worth. To find out what they're earning today and what they may earn in the future, you can request a confirmation letter from their employer. A job will be the main source of income for most people, but you may want to inquire about other revenue streams that they may have, like from rental properties, a side business, or from dividend stocks. Next, you'll probably want to assess their expenses. How much is their rent or mortgage payment each month, and what else do they spend their money on? You can verify this information by requesting copies of their bank statements. Once you know the candidate's cash flow, you'll then have a pretty good idea of whether they can afford to take on additional loan payments. For instance, if they've only got $100 left over each month, they probably can't afford to make $500 monthly payments. You can also use that information to decide how high their payments should be. If they're too high, you can actually exacerbate the risk of default. Next, you can look at their credit histories. This will give you a sense of how reliable a borrower they are. It may also identify outstanding debts or legal judgments. If you don't have access to a credit agency, you can ask the borrower to perform their own credit check and share the results with you. A lot of the time, it's free. After that, you'll want a description of their assets and liabilities. Do they own a property or a vehicle? What kinds of debts do they have? How much cash do they have? Do they have an investment portfolio? There are a couple of reasons to look at their assets. First, it'll indicate whether they can liquidate some of their holdings if they encounter financial difficulty. And second, if you have to foreclose, it'll be good to know what the candidate owns. In essence, all of this information can provide you with a snapshot of the borrower's financial life. You can use it to make a reasonable assessment of their ability to pay you back. It's quite common to amalgamate all of this content by asking the borrower to complete a loan application. If you worry that a borrower may run into a cash flow issue, one way to tackle that problem is to deduct interest payments from the funds advanced and keep them in reserve. For example, let's say you issue a two-year $30,000 promissory note at 10% interest with a 2% origination fee and you paid $1,000 in legal costs. You would therefore withhold $600 for the origination fee, $1,000 in reimbursements, and 12 months worth of interest, so $3,000. You write a check to the borrower for $25,400, but he has to repay $30,000. The borrower still makes interest payments each month, but you've got some in reserve just in case. Once the loan is repaid, you'd credit any leftovers to the balance. Now, a lot of inexperienced lenders have no problem with collecting monthly payments. But they run into issues when they don't think about how the principal will be repaid. For example, if you loaned me $25,000 at 10% interest, I could afford to pay you $200 a month. But could I return the $25,000 by the maturity date? That's an entirely separate issue. 
One way to deal with this challenge is to require the candidate to make principal payments each month. For instance, if I had two years to repay you, I might have to make monthly payments of $1,100. Again, you'd want to consider whether I could afford to pay you that much. If that's not an option, you'll want to think about how the candidate plans to repay the principal sum and whether that plan is reasonable. This can be tricky because nothing in business is ever certain. Last year, even I myself invested in a mortgage that's now gone past its maturity date. I helped finance a real estate deal where I earned monthly interest payments from the developer, but I don't get my principal back until the property sells. Six months after the deadline, the developer still hasn't been able to sell the property. I continue to earn interest each month, but I probably won't get my money back until later this year. In this case, it's not an issue because I knew going into it that there'd probably be a delay. It paid highly enough that I didn't really mind, but it speaks to how hard it can be to perfectly time a mortgage. As well, if liquidity was a problem for me, then I could have been in some trouble. With Pacific Income, for example, we try to assess the repayment ability by taking a deep dive into the borrower's business. One of the metrics that we use when lending to a business that isn't involved in real estate is whether the company could reasonably earn 150% of the loan amount in the next year. That is, if we lend $30,000, could the borrower generate $45,000 in revenue in the following 12 months? That will usually require gaining an understanding of the ins and outs of the business, rather than viewing it only in the light of numbers on a loan application. We also try to place the maturity date well after the borrower plans to pay us back. For example, if he says that he can repay the loan in January of 2019, we might make it due in May or June, just in case. By now, it should go without saying that the property's LTV is another key to due diligence. After you've secured a loan with a mortgage on the real estate, what will the loan-to-value ratio be? You've got to know this number in order to assess your ability to recover the debt in the case of a default. If it's too high, you run the risk of not being able to get your money back. Say, for example, the market's dip and the price falls, or the court orders a fire sale at a low price. Regardless, you need to have enough equity in the property to be able to recoup your funds. Most lenders will require an LTV of between 60 to 85%. So that would mean that the property's price could dip by 15 to 40% and they'd still be relatively safe. In the deal that I described a few minutes ago, where the loan is overdue, the LTV is under 50%. There's no golden rule, but if I had to pick an industry standard among investment funds and private lenders, I'd say it's around 75%. People start raising eyebrows once you get into the high 80s and 90s. Your calculations may also vary based on real estate market predictions. For instance, if you think there's a risk of a major dip, you might be more conservative with your LTV. Keep in mind that you'll want to do the math based on the current value of the real estate in question. For example, a lot of investors in syndicated mortgages, I'll discuss those in a later episode, have been burned because the LTV was based on the value after construction. For example, a real estate developer has land that's worth $4 million, 
He borrows $20 million to build condominiums on it, but he tells investors that the LTV is only 67%. But how is that even possible? Well, he comes to that conclusion because he thinks the building will be worth $30 million after it's constructed. But a thorough investor would ask, well, what happens if we have to foreclose before it's built? It would likely mean that a $20 million loan was secured by a $4 million asset. Investors would probably lose 80% of their capital if the deal went south. Now, there are other ways to tie more collateral into a mortgage loan. But I'm going to discuss those on another episode because it's worthy of its own podcast. Right now, I just want to focus on real estate. So let's skip over to managing origination risk. What happens if you commit to funding a loan, hire a lawyer, you spend time and money to set up the deal, and then it collapses? Maybe the borrower walks away or you back out of the loan. How do you avoid this scenario? One way of doing so is to have the borrower sign an offer letter or a commitment letter. In essence, the letter tells him that you're willing to fund a loan subject to certain conditions. For example, you might say, I'll lend you money, but I need a second mortgage on your property. I also want to see your tax returns from last year and your most recent mortgage statement, and you have two weeks to provide that information to me. As well, by signing this letter, you agree that I have now earned the origination fee and that you will reimburse me for all expenses that I incur in connection with this offer. The offer letter does a few things. First, it lets the borrower know that you're serious about doing a deal. Second, it lays out your expectations and makes it easier for you both to complete the due diligence process. Third, it helps ensure that you'll be reimbursed if the deal collapses. And fourth, you can earn your origination fee even if the deal doesn't go through. Many lenders will actually require the borrower to pay a deposit for the origination and the legal fees. That way, they don't have to try to collect it if the loan doesn't materialize. Some lenders actually try to make money on these sorts of offer letters without being serious about completing the loan. They get the borrower to pay a deposit and then make it difficult for them to complete the due diligence stage effectively cancelling the deal. I assume that's probably illegal, but it does happen quite a bit. So, as you can see, mortgage loans do come with risk, but like all investments, there are ways to manage them. Now, last week we also talked about liquidity risk, but we haven't addressed it on today's episode. We're going to discuss that on next week's podcast. Like I said before, It's not an option that's widely available to smaller lenders, but it'll help set the stage for other mortgage-backed investments that we'll explore, like mortgage funds, credit funds, mortgage investment corporations, and MREITs. Until then, please take a moment to visit my website and download my free ebook, The Foundations of Investing. You can get it by going to alexazadi.net. Thanks, and I'll see you next week.